Heavenly Father, we thank you. Understanding really how good you have been to us. Over all these generations, over our lifetime, looking back in the Word of God, uh, seeing how you have dealt with other people, how you have brought people through tremendous upheaval. And yet, at the end of the day, you will be the victor, and we will lift our hands to you and say, you deserve all the praise. You have been so faithful. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is sort of a nostalgic uh, period of time right now, isn't it? Um, thinking about what we commemorated yesterday, I was telling John uh, this morning, it has been exactly 40 years since we started seminary together in 1981. Isn't that scary? I think that's highly scary. And actually, uh, Dallas Seminary has never been the same. So, I mean, if, if we want to take responsibility for that, we can. It's kind of interesting, um, just in the text, and the text that you have on the front of your uh, bulletin there, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, of course, it's a very famous uh, chapter in the book of Isaiah. We're gonna, we'll get to that at the end. But the man reigned for 52 years. That's an incredible amount of time. The only king that outdoes him in that length of time will be Manasseh. And that's pretty incredible in the damage that he did. But anyway, I just thought to myself, you know, wouldn't it be fun to go back 52 years? What was happening 52 years ago? I mean, there's ancient history for some people in this room. Uh, 52 years ago, uh, Super Bowl three was played, and the New York Jets defeated the Baltimore Colts. Wow, I remember that. Uh, Richard Milhouse Nixon succeeds Lyndon Baines Johnson as the 37th president of the United States of America. Um, the Paris peace talks began between the U.S. and North Vietnam. And some of you uh, may not remember, I'll explain it to some of you. The Beatles gave their last public performance in January of 1969 on the roof of Apple Records. The impromptu concert was broken up by the police. So the Beatles were bugs, uh, pests. No, anyway. John Madden was named the head football coach of the Oakland Raiders. The world's largest airplane flew its first commercial flight. That would have been the 747. Mickey Mantle. Mickey what? Mickey Mantle retired. Uh, the first test flight of the Concorde jetliner was 52 years ago. Uh, and then we have some infamous people here. Sirhan Sirhan testified in court that he killed Robert Kennedy. James Earl Ray pled guilty to killing... Martin Luther King in Memphis. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower died 52 years ago. Ah, for you Houstonians. Dr. Denton Cooley implants the first temporary artificial heart in Houston, Texas. We didn't even know Houston needed an artificial heart, did we? But he implanted it. I mean, it may still be working, I don't know. 
<laughs> Reagan declares martial law on the UC Berkeley campus and the entire city as they try to build planned dorm buildings on People's Park. 3,000 protesters tried to seize it back, were waited off by riot police and tear gas. They didn't let them take over. What can we say? Judy Garland died. Prince Charles was called the Prince of Wales for the first time. <laughs> I thought he was the, like the Prince of Dolphins, but he, I guess he was the Prince of Wales. The half penny ceases to be legal tender in the United Kingdom. Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. Ted Kennedy drove his car off a bridge into the Chappaquiddick. Charles Manson, wow, what a bad year that was. Woodstock, 52 years ago. King Irdis is overthrown by a coup in Libya. That, I'm sure that was at the top of your list, but you know who took over? A guy named Gaddafi. Nobody had ever heard of that guy before. Yeah, and who misses that? Now, Marvel fans, this would be, this would be Scott. The first African-American superhero, Sam the Falcon Wilson, is introduced in the Captain America series by Marvel Comics and becomes the new patriotic Avenger. 52 years ago. Wow, that's, I mean, for us comic fans, that was a big deal. Michael Jackson makes his first appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show. Now we could do without that one. Tiny Tim got married on the Tonight. Some of us remember that, right? Unfortunately, I, I can't scrub that one from my mind. Anyway, 52 years ago, that's a long time ago. Well, in looking at what we're going to be looking at with King Uzziah, the situation of his death may be one of the most notable things. And the fact that God does something very important there is very notable. But what we're going to do first is we're going to look at his early life. We only have that record of his early life in Chronicles, in Second Chronicles 26. So if you have a Bible, take a look at that. Now, one thing I will tell you is in looking at these kings, the important thing that we're kind of looking at, or at least in my mind when I looked at the lives of these kings, is what God's trying to show us, because most of these kings had a notable point of faith in their lives, something that was extremely heroic, something that we should all want to emulate, but at the same time, they came to a particular place, and their faith crumbled. And it crumbled, in many of these men, it crumbled very big. And these are the same things that can happen to us. Very strong when we're young, willing to give it all when we're young, and then something happens. It could be thinking we're coming to the end of our lives, and our faith gets shaken. Uh, it could be running out of purpose, having accomplished everything we thought we needed to accomplish. I think that Solomon kind of falls into that one and had no goals of his own after that. So the thing is, in looking at the lives of these men, it's always important to think of what is God trying to show us to warn us in a, in a good, healthy way so that we don't step into these same things. Now, in Ezra, writing Chronicles, uh, the important thing to see is the pattern that he sets up here. The pattern is sort of this. He's trying to show an entire generation of Israelites, most of whom who have never, ever seen Israel before. 
The people who went back with Zerubbabel, some of those people were old enough to remember what it had been like. But the generation that Ezra is writing to, they haven't seen it. They were born and raised in Babylon, in one of the greatest cities of the world, where one of the seven wonders was. So why should they want to go back to Israel, to this burned out place in Jerusalem, the ruins of a ghost town? What makes Israel so glorious? And that is what Ezra accomplishes like no other, particularly in how he builds up David. If it were not for Ezra, you're hearing your name a lot, aren't you? Right? If it were not for Ezra, we would never know truly how great a man David was and how he recovered from the disaster he brought into his own life. So one of the things that Ezra consistently shows is that a godly king busies himself with setting up the worship of the people. By setting that up, he, he gets the Levites back in order, and he gets the priests back in order, and he gets worship in the temple running smoothly. That is the mark of a great king. So on by contrast, the kings who don't do that might have a problem. Now, so as we get into Uzziah here, we're getting much more information than we when we got in King what we had in Kings. And obviously Ezra is writing this for a purpose. So it says that Uzziah, I'm just gonna kind of skim through this. It says that he became king when he was sixteen years old. Uh, it talks about things that he built and restored right away. It mentions that he came under the tutelage of Zechariah. Now, everybody is kind of scratching their heads on how they do that, and I will let those numbers, wonder men, uh, biblical scholars, figure that out. Actually, the Bible Knowledge Commentary has a theory on how that can be done, and I'll just leave it at that. But Ezra mentions that he was tutored by Zechariah before this Zechariah was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. So he had a good influence apparently on him. Verse 5, he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah. Now, the one thing that you get, in, and Ezra is very consistent in this, is seeking God. Asa sought God. Hezekiah sought God. All these men sought God. That's a good thing. That's why it's so stark when you look at Asa's life that at the end of his life, he didn't see God because it says it so often coming up to him. So apparently one of the things that Ezra wanted to point out is that Uzziah sought God. And then we have from verse 6 to verse 16, uh, amazing accomplishments. He went out, verse 6, he went out and made war against the Philistines and broke down the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabneth and the wall of Ashdod. So he's taken out their major cities in uh, everywhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines. So he received God's help and it was known. And his fame spread even to the border of Egypt. And he became very strong. And then, apparently, he's kind of a military genius. It says in verse 9, he built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle and, at the, and fortified them. And he built towers in the wilderness and cut out many cisterns, for he had large herds both in Shephla 
and in the plain, and he had farmers and vineyard, vine dressers in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. Good man. So he's sort of one of the people. I mean, he's uh, out there and doing what would be very popular with the people, getting the land together. Uh, moreover, he had an army of soldiers fit for war and divisions according to the numbers in the muster made by um, Jael and the secretary, and I won't even try that guy's name. And it goes on and on. Verse 12, the whole number of the heads of the father's houses of mighty men of valor was 2,600. And it talks about spears and helmets and coats of mail and bows and stones for slinging. And he built engines up on the walls, up on the towers. Must have been like catapults to throw stones and arrows. Wow, what a guy. You know what's kind of curious, though? I mean, because all of us know what's coming in the story, right? But what's kind of curious is that none of the kings who built big shiny armies really ever had to use them, per se. Uh, because when they went out to fight, God gave them these amazing victories, you know? And so, like, with Asa, he goes out with this big army, God wipes out the guys. I, actually, I think they take themselves out. You know, so the point is, he put a lot of time. He is not then known as a man who built up the worship of Israel. It is, if, if you look at all these guys in, in Chronicles, conspicuous by its absence is it's not talking about putting the singers in place that David said ought to be the singers and putting the divisions of the Levites in place so that they would, in an orderly fashion, this is all David. It's kind of amazing what David did. He was sort of an organizational animal when it came to setting up the worship of the people because that's what makes the people strong. That's what makes Israel strong, not their army because they got a big God who can take care of them as Hezekiah, for example, would find out. So then we get to verse 16, and this is very similar to what we've seen in some, with some of the other kings, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. And then it says, and, and just to get to the rest of the story here, but um, Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor, and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, it's not for you, Uzziah. I wonder if they said, sir, um, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense, go out of the sanctuary for you have done wrong and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God, and Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they rushed him out quickly. And he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, being a leper... Uh, he lived in a separate house for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. When Jotham got old enough, he co-reigned with his dad. So 
what is sort of the issue here? The issue, I think, to break it down and to try to make it a little bit applicable for us, is that God had set up an order. Like it or not, God set up an order, and you go with the order. So, have we seen this before? Oh, yeah. Korah's rebellion. And actually, before Korah's rebellion, it happened with Miriam and Aaron. Right? They go and they say, hey, who are you? I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're kin, actually, and God's, God can speak to us. And God took great exception at that. It's like, basically, if I wanted to talk to you, I would. I talked to Moses. Whoa, what's going on there? Korah did basically the same thing. And that did not turn out okay. God makes the choice. He says, here's the order. This is what I'd like you to do. And then we get into the book of Judges and bad things happen there. And, and, and Now, if you understand the book of Judges, right? The two stories at the end really happened at the beginning. So if you understand that, these two stories that happened at the beginning, basically the demolition of the tribe of um, Benjamin and the story of Micah and the tribe of Dan. That's important to know because Moses' grandson or great-grandson is in all of that. And what that means is that the Levitical system it went, to, it went to, into the sand quickly. It just dissolved quickly. So you get to Gideon, and Gideon does something really bad. They say to Gideon, we want you to be our king. And Gideon, rightfully, he says, no, I'm not going to be your king. But I do have one request. I'm going to make an ephod. Now, the only way we know the word ephod is it was a part of what the priests wore. And in the front of the ephod, there was a pouch. And in that pouch were two things, stones, that could be used to find God's will. Now, you could maybe understand Gideon saying, you know what? The Levitical priesthood is totally untrustworthy. I don't trust the... I, I mean, you know, we, we get to know... Sam, uh, uh, Eli and Eli's sons. Are those, are those trustworthy men? Uh-uh. So what happens then if you don't feel like you can trust the Levites, if you can't trust the priests, you do it yourself. And Scripture even records that when he did that, it didn't bring blessing, it didn't bring honor, but it actually weakened Israel. What should he have done? Pretty Pretty easy. He should have worked to build that up again. But that's not what he did. He decided to circumvent God's plan, to circumvent God's order, to do it himself, and maybe things will turn out better. They didn't turn out better. He lived a life of luxury, having 70 sons, and, and you know, you got to put a lot of attention into having 70 people like that. Who'd want 70 kids, you know? But anyway, that's what he did. He circumvented God's plan. It appears that Uzziah is doing the same thing. Now, another case in point 
is Solomon. When Solomon runs out of goals, I mean, yeah, I wish he could have sat down with some of us. We would have given him some goals, right? I mean, if you understand what Ezra says in First Chronicles, the temple was all David. You don't know that from reading Kings. But when you read Chronicles, you know that David gave him plans. He told him how big everything was supposed to be. He had stockpiled gold and silver and all of that stuff. Everything was laid out. Even nails were laid out. The plans he received. So, here's the thing. In a sense... Solomon fulfilled his dad's goals, but maybe not his own. So after 20 years of building, this man standing there in midlife crisis with all of the power and all of the money that a man could ask for, but with no purpose in his life. And so what did he do? If he would have only talked to us, what could he have done? You know what he could have done? He could have set up embassies in all countries uh, talking about how great Yahweh was. He could, have, he could have made a mission group. He could have sent Israelites all over the world, even to Milwaukee. He could have had people talking about God in all different countries. But that's not what he did. He ran out of goals. He caved in on himself. The purpose, the redemptive purpose of God was not part of that. And then Jeroboam becomes the king, right? Jeroboam becomes the king of the northern kingdom. And what does he do? Equal opportunity employer, right? He sets up two worship stations and he says, you want to become a priest? Hey, sign up. Yeah, we're, we're taking applications for priests. Doesn't matter where you come from. And he makes everybody a priest. From all the different tribes, he circumvents God's order. So, in this situation... Oh, and then the last, the last point in this, too, is Nehemiah. What struggle does Nehemiah have? Nehemiah sets up the worship. Right? He's got Ezra there. Ezra is there like, I forget, uh, 15 years before Nehemiah, something like that. Scrubbing up the people, getting them ready, getting their hearts and mind, teaching them hard. Nehemiah shows up. And you see the, the order there. He puts the singers back in place. He puts the gatekeepers back in place. He gets the whole thing running. He's having people bringing in the tithes because here's the deal. Supporting God's system meant you had to have a heart of faith. It really was a test of faith to give your money. In other words, do I really need these guys? I mean, these guys that what? They sit on their hands all day? The priest gets up like twice a day to work. I wish I only had to get up twice a day to work. Yeah, and then what does he do? He sits back down and has lamb or something. I don't know what they eat. You know? Two sacrifices a day. Why support that? It was a test of the hearts of the people because when you get to um, Jehoshaphat, you see Jehoshaphat using these men for what they were meant to be. They became the Sunday school teachers of Israel. Hmm. But Nehemiah tries to get that together. He gets that going. He's the governor there for 12 years. He steps out, goes back to Persia. He comes back, and what has happened? The people gave all that up. The Levites are back out on their land. Nobody is, 
is keeping up regular services in the temple, and he has to put that back together. So following God's system is what a godly leader does. And for Uzziah here to walk in and do what he did is showing disrespect for God's people. He felt like he was as good as anybody else. And equality before God. I mean, you know, obviously God sees us equal. In Christ, it's just one man, no Jew or Greek, slave or free. We're one person in Jesus Christ. But God still makes differences. And so we need to honor those differences. And I know you're sitting there wondering, what does all this lead to? Because thankfully, we don't have to worry about applying this to our lives. You know what I mean? Isn't this cool? Actually, to have a text we don't have to use? Or do we? So, what about the church? Back in 1990, um, George Barna, he, he was already writing books and already doing surveys and that, but he wrote a book called The Frog in the Kettle. And basically, the, the book is this phenomenon. I've had to ex really explain this to people before, but it, it's this sort of thing, that if you take a frog and you put it in a pan of cold water, the frog will love it. And then you turn the heat on underneath that pan, the frog really doesn't notice it because the, I, apparently their body acclimates. And so what happens is you can boil it to death. Sitting in water, surrounded by danger, it just doesn't feel it, and so it doesn't make the change that it should make appropriate to that situation and that danger. So what Barna said back then is that changes were coming, and the church was going to have to either make changes or get boiled in the pot. Now, many things have happened, right? Many things have happened in our lifetime. And I'm not trying to be an old man, and I know I'm pushing it. I really do, you know? I, you know, when I was up in Milwaukee, I told them that I'm still doing youth. And they all go, what? You know, you're, you, at your age? I said, you know, this has some really beneficial results. First of all, I'm back up to being a 60% free throw shooter. I mean, because I've got to, you know, try to you know, act like I can do youth. And then I said, on the other hand, for the youth, this is having a very good effect for them. Because now we're seeing 15-year-old kids walking behind a walker, talking about their gallbladder. I mean, it's great. It, it kind of works both ways. But the point is, is that changes have happened. And I think for us, we need to stick with God's system. Okay? Um... For example, Laura and I did a survey one time. We were thinking about trying to plant a church in the inner whatever of Olathe, Kansas. And so what we did was we went around and we knocked on doors on Sunday morning. So, I mean, all the Christians are going to be at church, right? And so we knock on doors on Sunday morning. Surely the only people we're going to be talking to are non-Christians, unchurched people. Did we get a surprise? We bumped into believer after believer after believer. There's this one girl. She was a missionary for several years. And she said, I can't believe how easy it was to come back and just not go to church. Just flick the channel. And there I'm, I'm seeing him preach. And I flick this channel and I'm seeing uh, this singing group here. 
And, you know, it's just one of those things, right? This is a, this is a no-brainer for us in this group. Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. It's becoming more than a habit. But there are other things that happen. And, I, you know, I, these, are, these are things, you know, because we're talking about time and memorial and all that. Remember when there used to be a Wednesday evening service, not just a prayer meeting, it was a service, right, with singing and preaching and all sorts of stuff. And then at, at one church I was at, you know, my, our main church up in DeSoto, Texas, I used to call that babysitting for the Awana Club. Adult babysitting for the Awana Club. The adults didn't know what to do, but the Awana Club was running. The adults had to do something. We took care of them. Well, we used to have a Sunday evening service. It was a service, right? I mean, people were getting the Word of God. Plus Sunday school. Then they had adult Sunday school. They were getting it Wednesday evening. They were getting it Sunday morning twice. And then they were getting it Sunday evening. We didn't know any better back then. Boy, are we well-educated now. And you wonder, I mean, really, you don't have to be a genius to understand that in the U.S. we are having a problem with biblical literacy. It's just so, in comparison to what it has been, it's so little. It's just little. Things keep shrinking. I remember during Vietnam, what, what happened there that, that I remember is that candy bars, you know, it's like, candy bar, a quarter and then what they did was they still charged a quarter for the candy bar, but it was like, you know, they made it smaller. <laughs> we still notice. But, you know, what are you going to do, right? And now for that little candy bar, I'm paying way over a buck. Things happen. Things shrink. We adapt, sometimes without even thinking about what we've lost. Now, there's no God's order in that. God never said you had to have a Wednesday evening service, you had to have a Sunday evening service and all that. Those things came out of the Great Depression. Those things came out of World War II. Those things came out of the Spanish flu when people were needy, when people couldn't make it, the Depression couldn't make it from Sunday to Sunday. And so they gathered together in fellowship around the Word of God. They heard the Word of God. The Word of God kept them going. We don't need that today. Or do we? I don't know. So really what I want to point to are just two things. And it's like practical things that maybe we could do. I just want you to know, and I'm doing this to show I'm equal opportunity here. I have been the pastor of a Baptist church. I have been the pastor of an evangelical free church. I have been the pastor of a Berean fundamental-ish kind of church. Um, I've been the pastor of a Bible church. I'm not picking on anybody. And, and the church that I love up in DeSoto that I came up with when I was going to um, seminary is a Bible church. Um, 700 people right now. You know, um, I just want to point out what I don't see, where I think we're missing God's order. Back in the 80s, 70s and the 80s, we used to teach about spiritual gifts. Nobody teaches about spiritual gifts anymore. I mean, yeah, you hear about them. People kind of glance over them. Do you realize that there was a time when people used to have classes in church to discover their spiritual gifts? Now, 
That's part of another phenomena, though. And part of the other phenomena, the, the other phenomena that went with this is people, churches were interested in getting their people involved where God had gifted them so that the body could become stronger. And the churches that I saw that did that were very evangelistic. Uh, what do I mean by evangelistic? People were coming to Christ there. And so they, they kind of made this, the, this value of saying, we want you to know what your spiritual gift is so that you can plug it in. You can find out what God has gifted you for, but also we can tap into your gift. We can find areas where we can show compassion in our community. We can find areas where we can be helpful and do good deeds in our community because those are the people who see those things. I mean, this is right out on the street in that neighborhood. How can we help these people without having to go to the next town, without having to go downtown to the soup kitchen? How can we tap into where we are right now? And that's how those gifts were being used. I don't see that happening anywhere anymore. Now, this is where it comes to this text. But God made a certain order. And I think he desires that we respect his order. We are not all equal. You know, I mean, we are. But if God has gifted someone in a certain way, you know, it's like, why do we need that? Maybe it's just a question. Why do we even need that? If we're not building anything, what do, what do we need that for? Why would we even teach on that? I don't know what we do with those people. Huh. I wonder if we're missing something as a result of that. Now, the other thing I will get to here, and um, I'm going to use their names in vain because it's more fun to do that, is Nate Bramson and Micah Tuttle. Do you realize in Ephesians 4, if you just look at Ephesians 4 where it talks about building the church, God gave gifts. This isn't the expansive list of gifts that Paul gives when he's talking to the Corinthians. Just four office gifts. Apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. For building up the body of Christ. To equip the body for building up the body of Christ. Okay, good. I get that. The apostles and prophets, that's a real easy one. That's sitting in your lap right now or it's on your iPhone, the Word of God. What about the other two guys? See, this is where I shot myself in the foot in my senior sermon because I preached this passage. And the takeaway from my sermon was either the first or the second person you hire needs to be the evangelist. See, because these are office gifts. These are not Billy Graham. This is not Luis Palau. This is somebody in the church with the gift of evangelism. Now, here's, here's the example. I, I Just imagine, I know some of you are going to break into a cold sweat, that Nate Bramson works here. Right? Yeah, exactly. Not only walking the aisles, but can you imagine meetings with Nate Bramson in there? It's kind of like, how can we mobilize? What are we going to do? We've got to do something. The only thing you could do then would be to ignore him. Because he would not shut up. Right? How can this church be mobilized to reaching the people with an arm's length where we live? And you know what? That makes a very healthy church. 
It really does. Because what that does is it means that people are also doing something in God's plan. They're reaching out, I know this is radical, to their next door neighbor. The neighbor, the word neighbor is used a lot in the Bible. I've checked. It's used a lot in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The word neighbor. And you know, the thing is, the government can shut a lot of stuff down. Maybe this isn't the time. I mean, it's been eons since we've had uh, crusades and all that kind of stuff. Remember the 70s and the 80s? I mean, us old timers, you don't see that stuff anymore. Do you realize 11 years ago, Campus Crusade had to change their name? That's why you never hear Campus Crusade anymore. They're crew. I mean, that was an easy one. I mean, because you're just taking the first three letters. But the idea being, they cannot, on a university campus, they felt it was negative to be called crusade. And they needed to get rid of the name Christ. And henceforth, you and I don't hear about Campus Crusade very much anymore. I think they're still alive out there. But remember the impact they had 30, 40 years ago? It was amazing. But see, political climates change, but God's word doesn't change. And all God asks us to do sometimes is just get back to the basics, get back to his plan. And his plan is a great plan because it brings natural church growth. You don't have to do fancy stuff. You don't have to get involved with parachurch organizations. Parachurch organizations like Navigators and uh, Campus Crusade and InterVarsity, I mean, they were great for university campuses. I mean, those are legitimately good uh, parachurch organizations. But parachurch organizations that do what the church ought to be doing, I go, ah, we can do that. I mean, search ministry here is, is a good thing to kind of link up with, but there's nothing that search does that we couldn't do. Okay? Uh, we don't have a pro football player here, but Mark, Mark's almost built like one. More like Santa Claus if he would grow his beard out, but anyway. But the point being, we can do all that stuff, but you know what we're missing? We're missing the evangelist. We really are. And God says, I, you know, I mean, lists are lists, right? Is that really in the order of importance? I would say apostles and prophets is like order of importance, right? And you got the other two guys. <laughs> what do we do with them? Well, we don't want the evangelist, so let's just jump him, and we're going to go to the pastor and teacher. You know what you get out of Dallas Seminary? Pastors and teachers. You know what you get out of Southwestern Seminary? They were saying this when John and I were there. You get evangelists. Now, one legitimate question would be this one. Why is it then that you see, you don't see churches that have an evangelist on staff? And part of the reason for that is this, that the pastor, the guy up in the pulpit, is already an evangelist. The pastor in the pulpit is doing the work of an evangelist. The thing about evangelists that are neat is they know how to talk to people. They know how to develop relationships. They know how to open those doors. They're very personable people. I saw this one guy walk into Starbucks. And within minutes, he's introducing strangers to one another. I mean, how does that happen? It's a gift of an evangelist. That's the magic thing that Billy Graham had. But the thing is, churches need that too, because if they don't have it, they don't stay on mission. 
if all you got is Dan the Dallas Seminary grad, I can tell you a lot about the Bible, but you need an evangelist. And John and I are gifted in a certain way. We're not gifted in that way. And the thing is, we ignore that. We ignore it in the spiritual armor. And I'm just saying, I think that it's a good thing for a church to be healthy. And I think that God's going to get in front of a lot of people, or a lot of people are going to come in front of God, and they're just going to say, God, it was tough down there. It was a tough job. And you've heard me do this one before. And he said, yeah, that's why I wanted you to read my word regularly. Really? That would have done it? Yeah, yeah, read Psalm 1. Oh, you didn't mean every day. Yeah, I meant every day. Ooh, it would have been easier? Yeah, it would have been easier. Every day. This isn't radical, it's just getting back to the Word. And what about this thing with how to construct? You read uh, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. That's a very healthy church. It, it brings bodily growth and it builds itself in love. It brings bodily growth naturally and it builds itself in love. And I just think we need to do that. You know, we're, just to close out the message here, uh, these verses in Isaiah, uh, go to Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. In the king, just stop there, in the year that King Uzziah died, this is a depressing year. The stability that people had known in their lives came to an end. His son was an okay guy, but his son wasn't godly either. There's nothing godly said about Jotham. And then the guy who comes after Jotham is just a piece of work. And not only that, you've got Syria trying to rise up to be a world power, and they're pestering the life out of everybody, and you've got northern Israel linked up with them, and you've got Assyria. These are major Major threats in their world that can come over the hill at any time. What do we have today? Wow. I mean, we're sitting on a powder keg. The only solace we take is that Jesus says, don't be alarmed, and these things must happen. So God apparently is in charge. But I mean, we've got China, and we've got this, this whole debacle in Afghanistan, and we've got all these good reasons to be nervous. And that's, I think, what Isaiah was. And he walks in the temple. That sounds like Psalm 73, by the way. I saw all these things. They didn't make sense to me. I was ready to give up. And then I walked into the temple of the Lord. And God does an amazing thing here. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings and... And they were crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Talk about us needing to get back to the basics. Our God reigns. And you realize at this point, what God is starting to do for Isaiah is show him his massive glory. Show him his massive plan. And we're the beneficiaries of it. Today in the reading of the one-year Bible is the root of Jesse, out of which a branch, a Nassar, would grow. Oh, Jesus from Nassaret? Yeah, that guy. Out of the root of Jesse, our Savior. God reigns. 
And this is the time we need to be excited. This is the time we need to do the work. This isn't the time to fold. This isn't the time to get governmental and all sorts of uh, scared about what's coming around the bend. This is the time to get back into the Word of God and see God high and lifted up. And then simply to get back to the basics. God has a system. Let's build up the system. I will be, it'll probably be my death, I will be a church man till the day I die. Because I believe that if anybody's going to reach the world, it is the church. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. Just thinking about your word. Uh, When Jesus quotes to the Pharisees, he says, is it not written uh, that God said, you are gods to whom the word of God came? And of course, the The context where that's really quoted from is a negative context. But the fact is, if somebody's holding the Word of God in their hand, it's just like gold. It's just like an amazing cure. It's like more precious than we could ever, ever understand. It's God said to those people, you are God's because you have my word. Now, we aren't, and we, we don't fool ourselves at all. But how powerful, how amazing is it that you have entrusted this word to us that we could hold gold every morning, that we could hold something more precious and powerful than gold every morning in our hand. How amazing that we have the plan of redemption. We're going to live forever Nothing can tackle us. Nothing can take us down. I mean, we're going to be with you forever. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. So I pray, Father, that you would help us get back to the basics. To honor that which you honor, your order, and to walk with you and to build it up strong and to take this amazing plan of redemption that you have revealed to us and to take it to our neighbors. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.